There's some wonderful promises in your scriptures. We thank you for the promises that we've sung about. Uh, how you promised never to leave us or forsake us, uh, even in the midst of trials and troubles. We thank you for um, the firm foundation uh, that we have in your word. And Heavenly Father, now as we come to your word, we pray that you will speak to us, uh, that you enable us to understand and appreciate uh, more and more what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus, uh, that we would love you more uh, and desire to serve you from our hearts. And we ask this in his name. Amen. We've all heard of stories of people who have inherited great wealth but never realized it, haven't we? People who lived as paupers all their lives, even though they were heirs to a great fortune. One of the tragedies, I think, of current Malaysian Christianity is that so many people don't realize how rich they are. Not in material terms, but in spiritual ones. People have been justified by faith, but often never realize the ramifications of it. And so our passage today is a wonderful passage, because in it, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, tells us the results of justification. He shows us the implications of trusting what Christ has done for us. And let me say, the results are out of this world. Before we see that, though, let's go back and refresh our memories for the moment of where we're up to in the book of Romans. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the reason it saves everyone who believes is in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, God shows us a way to be considered righteous. He shows us how to be justified, righteousified, if you like, declared not guilty, acquitted, right with him. He offers us a righteousness that is from faith for faith, that it is based on faith, not on performance. And then we ask, well, why does God need to do that? Why not we just try to be good? And the reason, verse 18 of chapter 1, is for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and righteousness of men. The wrath of God is coming because people don't treat God properly. And we read about that in the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, and first half of chapter 3. None of us treat God properly. None of us love him and honor him and obey him as he deserves. We've all insulted him, rebelled against him. Our actions show symptoms of that in how we treat God and how we treat each other. And all of us are like that. Paul shows the Gentiles are sinners, the Jews are sinners, and if we all face judgment in the last day, judge strictly and justly for what we have done, we will be found guilty. None of us is really righteous. So we all deserve God's, God's wrath and condemnation. The Jews thought that maybe they could get righteous by obeying the law of Moses. But the law can't help us. Can't get right with God by doing good things, even the good things God told Israel to do. We just can't make it up to him. Can't undo what we've done. We can't obey the law properly. All the law does is show us our guilt. Cannot justify us. Cannot make us not guilty. Cannot make us righteous. That's the summary of chapter 1, verse 18, up to chapter 3, verse 20. And then we saw that God did what we could not do. 
God showed his righteousness, his own justice, his own goodness by doing it, by giving his son as a propitiation for our sins. You saw that in chapter 3, verse 25. A propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. Remember how God's wrath was rightly coming because of human sin? Well, Jesus' death on the cross has taken away God's anger against our sin. Because our sin has been punished. It has been rightly and justly and honorably dealt with on the cross. Jesus took our place and now we can be acquitted. Now we can be justified. And so in chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned, as both Jew and Gentile, fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. And then we came to chapter 4, where we, really what we did was double-click the word justified there. And we saw again that justified is a forensic word. It comes from the law courts. It means to be declared righteous, not guilty, to be acquitted. And so when the Holy Spirit in the scripture talks about justification by faith, he is saying that God declares guilty people, like you and me, not guilty. And he's right to do it because Jesus bore our guilt for us. There is nothing we can do to earn it. There is nothing we can do to deserve it. It is a gift from God. So our job is not to work for justification. In fact, we must, we must not try to. Instead, we have to trust God for it. As we saw in chapter 4, verse 5. For the one who does not work, does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith is what makes us righteous, or makes us counted as righteous. But faith is not no merit of its own. Faith just looks to the object of faith, the person you put your trust in. That's the important thing. We trust not in ourselves, not in our faith, but in the God who justifies the ungodly. We trust the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And when we trust in him, we are counted as righteous. In fact, no need to wait for the final judgment. God has already given the verdict for those who trust in him. God says, you are justified. I consider you not guilty now and forever. I am not going to send you to hell anymore. I count you as righteous, as good, as holy. No, you're not really, but I can treat you that way because you are in my son. He was delivered up for your trespasses. He died for your sins. He was raised because of your justification. Because your sins have been completely dealt with by him. So if you trust in God who raised Jesus from the dead, then you are justified. Declared not guilty by faith in him. That is where we are up to in our Roman series. And now we come to the beginning of chapter 5. And here we see laid out for us the results of being justified by faith. And we see three wonderful things that come out of this justification. The first thing is that we have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing? We have peace. In chapter 1 verse 18, we saw that the wrath of God was being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. We had no peace with God. He was angry because of our sin. But now, because of what Christ has done for us, now, because of all the things that he's done that we talked about in the last few chapters, we have peace with God. We are no longer facing his wrath. We are no longer his enemies. He's not angry with us anymore. He doesn't hold our sin against us anymore. We are not under his condemnation anymore. We have peace with God. That is an objective peace. Peace in reality. Now, imagine you were someone who really liked America. I don't know why you would, but Kathy's not here, that's all right. All right. But let's say you really like America. You watch American TV, you eat American fast food, talk with American accent, sing patriotic American songs, you feel American. You turn up in America, you show your Malaysian passport, demand to be let in, and they'll probably say, sorry. Uh, they might frisk, frisk, you know, interrogate you first and you know, frisk you and all that. But they'll say, go back to KL, apply for a visa, sit for an interview, fill out these forms, and maybe we'll let you in. You might feel American subjectively, but, but you're not really, are you? On the other hand, a US citizen who's lived many years in Malaysia, doesn't feel like an American at all, prefers roti chanai to hamburgers, maybe doesn't even speak English, would wave his US passport and walk right in. Why? Because no matter what his subjective feelings are, he's objectively an American. The reality is the important thing, isn't it? When the Spirit says we have peace with God, he's not just talking about a feeling of peace. You can feel peace with God and still be God's enemy. You can just be ignoring the problem of sin, denying God's just anger against sin, and you may not feel like God's enemy, but you are. That is the objective reality. On the other hand, you might be at peace with God, really, but your conscience hasn't realized it yet. You're still feeling guilty for the things that have already been forgiven. And it might take some time for the real objective peace that you have by trusting in Christ to translate into the subjective sense of peace. The most important thing is not how I feel, but the reality of the situation. We have peace with God if we are justified by faith. Now, don't hear me saying feelings are not important. They are. Of course they're important. Feelings must be based on fact. Fact must drive the feelings, not the other way around. Believe the facts, feelings will eventually follow. If you are justified by faith, if you are trusting God to save you, if we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God raised him from the dead, then the fact is that you have peace with God. God is not angry with you. He is not your enemy. He is not against you. He is for you. That is a wonderful thing. 
and learn to enjoy it. Realize more and more. Let that translate into your feelings. Because you can't tell that from your feelings. You know that by faith. By trusting God's word. We have peace with God. The second result of our justification is that we are standing in grace. Verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You see, if we have been justified by faith and we have peace with God, we have a change in status. Our position with regards to God is different. We stand in grace. We have access. We have been introduced. We have been ushered into this new state. Let me show you a picture that some of you might be a bit familiar with. Oh, it's hard to see, isn't it? Can you make that out? Can you see it? Okay. The picture shows two spheres. Two places where people can spiritually be. We're all born on the left-hand side. In sin. With ourselves as king, facing God's condemnation on the last day, after being fairly judged for what we've done. On the right hand side, we're in a different place. Different country. Different jurisdiction. We are in the kingdom of God. Under Jesus as king. We are, as, as Paul would put it, in Christ. And in that place, in that kingdom, we are under grace. In that country, God does not hold our sins against us. Our acceptance to God is not based on performance. For we are in Christ. And Christ's perfect righteousness applies to us. Still have a sinful nature. We also have God's Spirit who is leading us to holiness. We still struggle against sin. But God counts us as if we don't have sin because that is our position in Christ. We are united with Christ by faith. All his goodness becomes ours. All our sin became his and he paid for it completely on the cross. So we are living in grace. God is treating us continually the way we don't deserve. He accepts us as if we were sinless. We have forgiveness. We have peace with God. We live every day in the presence of the God we love. And every day we know that God loves us and accepts us. Because of Jesus. When we are justified by faith, we are moved from the left hand box to the right hand box through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access to, we have been introduced to that right hand box to be in grace, to live in grace, to be in a place which we don't deserve under King Jesus and enjoying all the blessings of being in Him. And we stand in that grace. You see, sometimes people think we're kind of like on the right-hand side until we sin, and then we sin, or we kind of go back to the left-hand side under God's condemnation. And then when we confess our sins, we kind of go back on the right-hand side, and then we sin again and go back on the left-hand side. You know, ding-dong, ding-dong, ding-dong. I used to think that. So every time I said, I I ate, I said, thank you to God for my food, and I said, please forgive me. Ding, back to the other side. Sometimes people treat the prayer of confession. We say church a bit like that too, don't they? Right? Go and sin all week and then come up this side, bang, get back to the other side. But friends, that's, that's not the case. 
We don't go from one side to another depending on how we performed or when we last confessed our sins. No, no, no. Verse 2 tells us that we stand in grace. We remain in grace. We are under grace. If we are in Christ, we don't fall back into being unconverted every time we sin. No, we have been justified by faith. We've already heard the verdict from the end. Not guilty. We have peace with God. Not just when we're doing the right thing, we stand in grace. If we are in Christ, then no matter what happens, we are, we are under grace. All our sins are covered. Past, present, future. There is no condemnation for those who are in King Jesus. We stand in grace. Isn't that a mind-blowing and amazing thought? I don't know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, this is too good. If God has justified us already, if God has given us this not guilty verdict, well, that's kind of like a free out of jail card, isn't it? You stand in grace, why don't you just go and sin indiscriminately? You're under grace now, not law. Christ is paid for your sins. Don't do it, huh? Nike, just do it now. If you're under law, why not go and sin? Well, if you're asking that question, that's great actually, because then you've understood what the passage is saying. You've seen that it is so radically grace-based that people must think there's something wrong. You're wondering if it could easily be abused as a license to sin. You know, you're on the right track because it's exactly what Paul expected you to think as he wrote this. Paul anticipated the question, deals with it, because he knows this radical grace-based nature of what he's saying is going to be hard for people to digest. That's the good news. The bad news is he doesn't get to it until chapter 6, verse 15. He says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And so you have to wait until we get there, or you have to read ahead. Because now we're in chapter 5. Read ahead, though. Come and talk to me afterwards if you want to talk about it a bit more. Chapter 5, the third great lesson that comes from justification by faith is that we rejoice in hope. End of verse 2. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If we have been justified by faith, if we have peace with God, if we stand in grace, then what we are looking forward to, in the end, is the glory of God. The thing that we boast in, the thing that we rejoice in, the thing that we, the thing from the future that drives us in the present, is the glory of God. Now, when Paul talks about the glory of God in Romans, there are two ways in which we can understand that. Firstly, there is the glory that is God's. And so rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God is rejoicing in the hope that God will be glorified in the end. Uh, back near the beginning of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 22, talks about how people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's idolatry. God is unglorified. And the whole letter ends at the end of Romans 16, 27. The last words is, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. 
And this glory of God comes through the gospel, which is expounded in the letter. And you see, where we're going in Romans to see that God is glorified in the end. That's the whole point of the gospel, that's the whole point of Romans, that is the whole point of life, the universe, and everything. And if we are people who are gripped by God's grace, if we are people of the gospel, if we are people who have been justified by faith and have peace with God, if we are people who stand in grace and experience a wondrous blessing in His favor, then we will know that He deserves it. That God is so good, He is so gracious, He is so holy, He is so wonderful, that He deserves all the glory. He is not only our Creator, He is our Redeemer. And in the end, he will be glorified. His goodness will be seen. In the end, he will be known to be the righteous God that he is. And that is what we hope for. That is what we boast in. That is what we look forward to. The glory of God. But you know, God is so, so kind that in spite of our unworthiness, He shares His glory with us, His people. And so rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God can also be rejoicing in the hope of the glory that comes from God. Romans 8.18 talks about the sufferings of this world not being worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us or in us. Romans 9.23 talks about how God has prepared believers beforehand for glory. And we look forward to that glory. We fall short of God's glory now, but but we look forward to the day when we will fall short no more. When God will change us and glorify us to be like Jesus. When we will be everything God has meant us to be. We will be whole in every way. We will be His people together. Loving Him totally. Obeying Him perfectly. Honoring Him completely. Enjoying Him forever. That will be glory for us too. And you know, as we are glorified like that, He is glorified as well. And he is, as He is glorified, we are glorified with Him. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is what we look forward to. That is what drives us now. But the context in which we hope in the glory of God is still the present age of suffering. We live in a suffering world, a world that is groaning, as it's waiting for that glory to be revealed. And Paul says, we don't just rejoice as we look forward to the end, we don't just exult in what God will do then, we rejoice in what God is doing now, in the midst of suffering and pain. So chapter 5, verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, hang on for a moment, Paul. Why do you have to bring suffering into it? Can you hear me, by the way? Is is it clear? Are we losing power? We're losing power. No, you can't hear. Okay. Why why are we bringing... Doesn't God want us to be happy? Should we be positive? Friends, the answer is God is not so concerned about whether or not we're happy. That is not his agenda. What God is far more concerned about is that we should be glorified at the end. Whether we are happy or not now, that is a secondary thing. 
What he wants to give us is whatever it takes to make us more like Jesus. That is the important thing. And so God is more interested in faithfulness than success. In joy than in amusement. In patience than in accomplishment. In kindness than in achievement. In love than in gratification. You see, God wants us to become more like Jesus in our character. Happiness comes in the end. We'll be perfectly happy in God's presence when, he is, when we are glorified. But the priority now is character. And so we rejoice in our sufferings because from the second half of verse 3, suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The word for character there is actually testedness, provenness, proven authenticity. For it's when we go through suffering that the genuineness of our faith is tested. It's in suffering where we see if we actually really trust God, who raised Jesus from the dead, or we're just pretending to. When we are tested by suffering and then endure, then we can, verse 4, have hope. Because we've been tested. We've been faithful under trial. We've kept trusting God under pressure. And not only would we have grown in our Christ-likeness, but it's clear that our faith is genuine. And so we have the expectation of glory in the end. Have you ever noticed that those people whose faith has been tested, those people whose endurance has been forged by suffering, have kept on trusting in Christ, even in the midst of very, very difficult times, they are far more heavenly-minded than most of us, aren't they? You notice that? And the Christians I've spoken to over the years, I find the ones who are looking forward the most to heaven are the ones who have suffered the most here and been the most faithful. If we seek to endure suffering, then we'll learn to keep looking ahead. Have to if we're going to endure. Learning to see things from an eternal perspective rather than just wallowing in our circumstances. Learning to rejoice more and more in the hope of the glory of God rather than rejoicing more and more in the things of this life. As we are tested, as we face suffering, as we endure, as we seek to suffer in the right frame of mind, then our hope will be strengthened. Our certainty of the future will be more and more strong as we trust God in more and more difficult circumstances. As our faith is tested, our hope is made more and more sure. And we look forward to the time when God will glorify himself and his people. If you are not facing suffering at this time, then listen carefully. Use this time to prepare yourself, because your time will come. Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're firmly grounded in the gospel. Your mind set on eternity. Be prepared for your faith to be tested. Prove to be genuine. But I suspect for most people here, you're already facing suffering in all different ways, aren't you? Some people face grief. Some people face problems in relationships. 
Some people face loneliness. Some people face difficult marriages, financial hardships. Maybe someone at work is really getting you down. Maybe it's your parents who don't understand. Maybe it's your kids who are rebellious. Maybe it's persecution, sickness, disability, depression, chronic pain. Brothers and sisters, suffering is hard. It's God's not pretending here that it's easy. That's why he talks about endurance. But in the midst of suffering, God is in control. He is working through suffering to make you more like Jesus. He loves you. He cares for you. You know that from the gospel. You've seen that from the cross. You know his plans for you in glory. He would not put you through this if it were not for your good. You can trust him. And as you trust him, you will seek to respond in a godly way to whatever it is you're going through. You will hold on to him in the midst of your pain. You will keep looking back to the gospel and seek to act in light of what God has done for you. As now you stand in grace. You keep looking forward to glory, act in light of what God will do for you in the future. And as you seek to endure, as you seek to take each trial as an opportunity to practice trusting God when it's hard, and you take each day as an opportunity to practice being godly, your character will be changed. You will be proven. You'll be shown to be authentic. And you'll be more and more like Jesus, who trusted and obeyed to the very end. And so in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice. Because God is even using that for our good. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And verse 5, hope does not put us to shame does not put us to shame. Remember our Old Testament reading from Psalm 25? Psalmist keeps asking God, do not let me be put to shame. Wants God to save him from the hands of his enemies. He wants to be forgiven, not punished. Let me not be put to shame, he says, for I take my refuge in you. And friends, if we take our refuge in Christ, then we will not be put to shame. The hope that we have in Christ, the expectation of his return, the certainty of his final glory, is secure. It will not be that at the end our faith is found to be useless. It will not be that at the end our hope is seen to be an illusion. It cannot be because, verse 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, if we belong to Christ, then God has given us his Spirit. The Spirit is a guarantee of what is to come. God's love is poured into our hearts through him. He is the one who enables us to grasp something of God's love. He is the one who opens our eyes to see that God loves us. He is the one who enables us to experience God's love. How does he do that? 
He does what he always does. He, he points us to Jesus. And so we read on ahead in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God has demonstrated his love by the death of Jesus for us. It is shown objectively, once and for all on the cross. Nothing can, nothing can match that. We know that he loves us. God loves us in such an extraordinary way that Jesus died for us, even when we were in rebellion against him. We were being ungodly. We weren't treating God properly. And Christ took our punishment for us. That is love. We know that he really, really does love us. And the Holy Spirit pours this love into the hearts of each of those who believe. He points us to the cross. He opens our eyes and our hearts to, to what Christ has done for us there. And he fills us with the assurance of God's love. He assures us that since we have been justified by faith, we will be saved on the last day when God pours his wrath on this world. He assures us that since we have peace with God, since we have been reconciled to him, we will be safe in the end. He assures us of the amazing fact that God, the creator of the world, loves each one of us personally. That God will not let us down. That our hope will not be in vain. We will not in the end be put to shame. We have the deposit. God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so in conclusion, friends, let me just remind you again what a great privilege we have as those who have been justified by faith. We have peace with God, real, objective peace. God is not our enemy anymore. He made peace through the death of his son. We've been introduced by Jesus, through Jesus, into the realm of grace in which we stand. We stand in grace, we live in grace every day of our lives. All the time we're still sinners, all the time we depend on God's grace, and all the time God accepts us by grace through Jesus. We live in the freedom of his grace. And thirdly, we rejoice in hope. We have a certain expectation of the glory of God. And so we have hope in the midst of suffering. And we know it will be fine at the end because we know God's love that he so clearly demonstrated on the cross and poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Let's take a few moments now to thank God for the grace that he has shown us in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have justified us by your grace through faith. We know that we don't deserve it, we can't earn it, but you have given your great verdict because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We thank you for that. And thank you that now that we have been justified by faith, we enjoy these, these, these wonderful privileges. 
We thank you that you have given us peace with you. We thank you that we have a good relationship now. That we can know you as our Father and love you. That we can know you without, without cowering in fear at your wrath. But rejoicing in your kindness. We thank you so much, Lord, for the peace that we have with you. And we pray that, we pray for anyone here, Lord, who's truly been justified by faith, truly has peace with you, that is finding it hard to feel that peace in a subjective way. We pray, Heavenly Father, that your Spirit would Speak to them of your word. We pray that your spirit would remind them of what you have done for us in Christ. That your spirit would show them the freedom, the peace, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the acceptance that we have because of what Christ has done for us. We pray that you do that, Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have been ushered in to this new standing, this new place in which we stand, standing in grace. We thank you that we can relate to you not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of your kindness and your grace. We thank you that you love us and accept us in Jesus. We thank you that we don't need to keep on feeling guilty and keep on punishing ourselves for things that we do wrong. But that all we need to do is keep looking to what you have done for us. Thank you for the security that this means. Help us to keep trusting you. Help us to realize more and more how sinful and unworthy we are, more and more how holy you are, and so more and more appreciate the grace that you've shown us in Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the hope of the glory of God. We thank you that we can rejoice in this hope. Because we know that that hope is a certainty. Because you have poured your love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You have enabled us by your Spirit to see and appreciate what Christ has done for us. And so we can have confidence as we look to the future. And in the midst of suffering and refinement and testing, be our strength, we pray. Enable us to keep trusting in Jesus. Please be changing us to be more like him. Strengthen that hope that you have given to us. That we may endure. That we may enter into that glory that you have set before us. 
And so, our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the wonderful, wonderful things that you have given us in the Gospel. We know that you are such a good God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.